One of the characteristics of the Bible's authenticity is its brutal honesty. If I were to have written the story of Esther, I would have ended it last week with the all lived happily ever after. (laughs) But what we need to understand about Scripture is that it's not a fairy tale, that it deals with real life, with death, destruction, and that's definitely true in our passage this morning. As James writes, where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. That's what it looks like to live in a a sin-cursed world. But what we see in the, the story of Esther is something that we see throughout the entire biblical account. There are two primary themes that you will find weaving themselves from beginning to end. And they are this. Sinfulness of man's heart and the faithfulness of God's love. Those two themes resound throughout the testimony of Scripture. It goes all the way back to to Adam and Eve who had every ability to enjoy the fullness of God's blessing, but yet in their sinfulness, they questioned God's goodness. But in love, God covered their nakedness even when they were trying to hide their sin from Him. The sinfulness of man, the faithfulness of God. And I want you to notice, as you think about that and all the stories throughout Scripture, God's faithfulness does not depend on mankind's behavior. In fact, the Bible says that he had a plan of redemption before the world ever began. You see, God knew what was coming. He knew that we would fall and that he would be prepared for our sin. See, God is faithful to us, even when he knew that we would not be faithful to him. So as we think about this story of Esther, I want us to consider the the reality that that God was at work well before Esther ever took her bold step of faith. In fact, God had a plan to to rescue his people, God's chosen people. He had a, a plan to rescue them before they were ever taken into captivity in the first place. See, he wasn't waiting on Mordecai or Esther to show up and do the right thing. He had gone before them. And he was working through an an evil society to carry out a divine purpose. So it's important for us to understand that God's redemption does not depend on man's faithfulness. Praise the Lord for that. God's redemption does not depend on man's faithfulness, but here's what's true. God's redemption does invite man's trust. It does invite our trust. So as we continue in this story of Esther, I want you to see it for what it was written for. To to help us see the the sovereignty of, of God's hand, the fulfillment of His unconditional promise. To preserve his people in order to bring salvation to the world. That's the message of Esther. See, when God raised up Esther, he had you in mind. And as you hear her story, he invites your trust. What was true for Esther, what was true for Mordecai, is ultimately true for you and I as well, even today. God carries out his redemptive purposes in a sin-cursed world. He knew we would be prone to wonder. 
He's not surprised by our sin. He understands the reality of suffering and pain. And, and he has made a way to have hope in a broken world. And Esther and all the story of the Bible resounds with a message of hope that can be found in Christ alone. But remember, his provision of rescue doesn't depend on our faithfulness, but it does invite our trust. So we need to hear clearly what he has in store for us. Let's ask him to go before us and bless our time. Father, as you have gone before all your people through all time, we ask for you to go before us now to help us see the truths of Scripture that meet the needs that exist in our hearts, the, the ways that you intend know what we need. You made a way. Your love is without limits. And our hope is in you. Help us be reminded and find strength in that this morning. We pray this in your name. Turn to Esther, chapter 9. Let's uh, finish up our study together. Esther chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now in the twelfth month, that is in the month of Adir, the thirteenth day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Even the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because of the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Well, where we left off last, there's been about a nine-month gap between Mordecai's decree and this fateful day when all the world essentially would attack the Jews. And I wonder, as I've thought through that, what those nine months must have been like waiting for that day. When the Jews walked down the city streets or made their way into the market, did their enemies mock them to their face? Did they, much like Iran does today with Israel, publicly pronounce their intent to annihilate the Jewish people from the face of the earth? Did they bully the Jews in an effort to get a, a psychological edge on them? The picture that I have in my mind are these two fighters kind of circling themselves in the ring waiting for the next one to make the first move. But as you think about it, this is not a fair fight. 
This is Israel against everybody else. A, a small little people group in comparison to the world that existed at that time, but everybody was against them. Much like we see increasingly the case in our world today. In, in Persia, the Jews are at a severe disadvantage. This is David and Goliath all over again. But we do see in verse 3 that there is some assistance that is given to the Jews from these leaders and officials in the Persian Empire. It, it says that that support was based on the fear of Mordecai. Look again at verse 3. It says, even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because of the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. I think that's interesting that... Here was this man that they once held in contempt and they now feared. Keep in mind that, that Mordecai was the guy who basically beat up the bully on the playground, right? Haman. And, and chances are he probably threw his weight around, used his wealth to bully these other leaders as well. And so the day that Mordecai destroyed him, he all of a sudden became a hero in the minds of many of the leaders who were ruling in the provinces around that area. And apparently over time, he continued to gain their respect. Maybe they saw a man who ruled with integrity instead of manipulation. Maybe they saw someone trying to do the right thing without strings attached. As Mordecai's reputation increased, so did the support that was given to the Jewish people. Look at verse 5. Thus the Jews struck their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, as they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And in the, the Susa, the capital, of the, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And then it lists Haman's ten sons. Verse 10, the ten sons of Haman, the, the son of Hamandatha, the Jews' enemy. But they did not lay hands on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Susa, the capital, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in Susa, the capital. What they ha have they done in the rest of the provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. And what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa, to do according to the edict of today. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Well, the day arrived. The Jews uh, held their ground. They defeated their enemies. And there's a curious twist in this passage that I want us to, to look at as well. Now, apparently the assistance that we looked at in verse 3 that was offered to the Jews was in verbal content only. Because we see in our passage that it were the Jews who were doing the fighting. They were the boots on the ground, so to speak. They made their defense. They stood their ground. And they did it on their own. In the capital city of Susa, there were 500 enemies of the Jews who were killed, including Haman's ten sons, likely seeking vengeance in the name of their evil father, carrying out his evil acts. But when the king... Uh, gets this report and they tell him what happens. He then turns to Queen Esther and explains what the outcome was and basically asks, is, is this what you wanted? Is this sufficient? Surprisingly, her answer was no. There needs to be another day to, to make a defense. 
And, and those sons of Haman need to be hung on the gallows just as their father was. Now I read this, and at first glance I wonder, has all this power gone to Esther's head? Is she choosing to be ruthless in this request? Or is she being wise in what she sees? Are there enemies at large who would intend to do as Haman and his sons intended to do? And, and they might grow stronger if left alone. Reminds me of what Joel Rosenberg said of ISIS months and months ago. He said, evil unchecked is a prelude to genocide. And it's proven to be true. And maybe that's what Esther saw and believed to be true as well. And when she makes this request to have the bodies of the ten sons of Haman on the gallows as their father was, we look at that and it sounds barbarian, and it is, but it was very much part of that culture in that day because it was intended to, to send a message, a warning for others who might intend to do that same evil harm to innocent people. If there were others, it would also challenge them to come out of the shadows. The bottom line is we really don't know with any certainty what her motives were and whether they were good or bad, but in the long run, it really doesn't matter because God is sovereignly in control to carry out his purpose regardless of those motives because of a promise he made to protect his people. But the curious twist is what you see at the end of verse 10. Look at that with me. It says at the end of verse 10, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. You see that repeated another three times, or a total of three times in this chapter. And if you recall the decree, it was very clear that you were able to go and not only make a defense, but you had rights to all the plunder of the people you defeated. So the Jews had the right to take everything for themselves. But they chose not to. And so you read that and you go, well, why not? Well, I don't know this for sure, but as we've walked through this, we've talked about how the Jews are trying to find their identity as God's chosen people. They've lost it as a people exiled in a foreign land, ruled by a foreign people. But over time, through Esther and Mordecai, there are examples of, of, of places in which they are beginning to implement Things of their faith, things of, of their past, of what it was like to be God's chosen people. And so I just wonder if maybe they began to think about some of their history as God's people. And maybe they thought back to Joshua. Remember when Joshua came into the land for the first time? And you'll also recall that God gave him the same instructions. And he said, do not take plunder from the people you defeat. So they go in direct to Jericho and have this miraculous battle in which they overcome. Remember? But one man compromised. A man by the name of Achan. And he took things for himself and hid them for selfish gain. Unknowingly, they go into the next battle, a city called Ai, which is much smaller, much less formidable in comparison to Jericho. In fact, Joshua only sends a part of the military that force that Israel had at the time because it was not going to be a difficult battle to overcome these people. But they lose. And many of the Israelites died in that battle and they learned that the result of that was because one man compromised. Taking plunder for himself and an entire nation was defeated. 
because of his sin. Maybe they remembered that. Maybe they remembered Samuel, or Saul, King Saul, when he went up against the Amalekites. I mean, very likely the Haman and his sons were descendants of those people. And when King Saul went up to the Amalekites, he defeated them, but then did the same thing. Against God's instruction, took plunder for himself. You may remember when he was confronted by Samuel the prophet about what he had done, his response was, oh, um, I'm saving that for a donation that I intend to make to the temple. He has justified his compromise. Do you remember what Samuel said? It's those famous words when he told him, to obey is better than sacrifice. Maybe they remember that. And God's rejection of a man who refused to put his trust in the Lord. We don't know for sure, but for whatever reason, they never took the plunder. They defended themselves and their families. They destroyed those who sought their harm. But that was the end of it. Look at verse 14. So the king commanded that it should be done so. And the edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. And the Jews were in Susa assembled also the 14th day of the month of Adair. So this is the next day. They killed another 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of the enemies. And they killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay hands on their plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month of Adair. And on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on that 13th day and the 14th of that same month. And they rested on the 15th. And made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore the Jews of the rural areas who lived in the rural towns. Make the 14th day, the month of Adair, a holiday for the rejoicing and feasting. And sending portions of food to one another. Now we'll understand more about what that's talking about at the end. But what we need to understand for now is another 300 Jews. uh, Or excuse me, another 300 enemies of the Jews were destroyed that second day that Esther had requested. So apparently she was right. Apparently there were those who still intended to do harm because all they're doing is making a defense and they destroyed those enemies who intended to annihilate them. Along with, as we learn, another 75,000 enemies throughout the provinces of the land of Persia. So against all odds, against all odds, the Jews stood the ground. It was them against everyone else. And in two days, the war was over. They had been defeated. God's chosen people miraculously stood their ground. Now, as you think about that, you can think about evidences of the very same thing happening throughout their history. I don't know of another people group who has been so repeatedly targeted and yet still survived. So in addition to the Persians and their attempts to annihilate them, you remember you've got the Egyptians... You've had the Romans, you've had the Russians, you've had the Nazis. They've all intended to annihilate the Jewish people and none of them have succeeded. Churchill summed it up this way. Listen to what he says. He says, some people like the Jews, some do not. But no thoughtful man can doubt the fact that they are beyond all question the most formidable and most remarkable race which has ever appeared in the world. 
He said that in 1920, before Israel had become a sovereign nation that it is today. And the, there were plenty of more miracles since he made that statement. You see, their survival, even in modern history, continues to be a miracle. Let me give you just one example. How many of y'all have heard of the Six-Day War? Okay, Six-Day War is an important event in Israel's history. It took place in 1967. Very much like what we see with Haman, Egypt was the bully. And they had threatened to annihilate Israel, just like Iran did, just like Haman did. So in Seeing what was going on, Israel decided to make a preemptive strike on Egypt. They sent their armies in to Egypt. Well, when they did that, they woke up the beast. Because in response to their attack, Egypt was, was joined by Syria, by Lebanon, by Iraq, and by Jordan. So much like we see in Esther, it was Israel against everybody else. Keep in mind, this is in 1967, so just 22 years after Israel had become a sovereign nation. So it's not like they've had a lot of history and time to build this massive military force and organize this structure of, of government and people to, to stand against such formidable enemies. By all accounts, this is a done deal. They don't have a chance. But in six days, they not only held their ground, they gained ground and defended themselves against their enemies. If you think about it, there is no good reason for Israel to have survived so many attempts to destroy them and still exist as they do today unless, unless God really is in control. Unless He is faithful to His promise, even when His people are not. I personally have no other explanation, and I would agree with Churchill, no thoughtful man who really looks at their history does either. It has to be God's sovereign control. Now look at how it continues in verse 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month of Adir and the 15th day of of that same month annually. Because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which was turned from, for them from sorrow into gladness. From mourning into a holiday. And they should make them their days feasting and rejoicing. Sending portions of food to one another and giving gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do. And what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast her, that is the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme which he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. And because of the instruction in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they should not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulations and according to their appointed time annually. 
So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, of every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or the memory fade from their descendants. Mordecai is seeking to memorialize these miraculous events. What took place was a miracle to be remembered. Mordecai gives the details of the account and he shares information that the average person probably wouldn't have known. They obviously knew about the edict. They received that decree themselves and they didn't know what caused it. They didn't know about Haman and how he cast lots and how he deceptively used his position of power to turn against the Jews, but then how he was caught into his own trap of deception, ultimately killed he and his sons. He gave the holiday a specific time and a a specific name. That name Purim, if you'll remember, stands for dice or lots that were rolled to determine the end of the Jews. But it was a celebration of God's goodness because he leaves nothing to chance. There's a passage in Proverbs 16.33 that says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. He leaves nothing to chance. So Haman sent out this decree. The Jewish people received it and embraced it. They agreed that this was important. And it was important enough to pass down from from generation to generation. Remembering what God did in the past was a part of having hope for what He promises to do yet future. And so this holiday was intended to help them remember and reclaim their identity as His people. Now look at verse 29. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And he sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, namely, words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them. And just as they had established themselves, for themselves and their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentation. And the command of Esther established these customs for Purim. And it was written in the book. Verse 10, or chapter 10 goes on to describe Mordecai and his continued leadership in that land. See, after Mordecai sends out his decree, Queen Esther sends out a letter basically given authority to that degree. And it makes sense. She's the queen. But in our story, as we've looked at this from beginning to end, that in itself is amazing, isn't it? This unknown, hidden little Jewish girl, now one of the most influential leaders of that world at that time. In fact, she's the only woman that I know of in Scripture who established a festival that is still practiced among the Jewish people to this day. But I also want you to notice that she added something that wasn't in Mordecai's original decree. Look at verse 31. There at the end it says, Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants, with instructions for their times of fasting and lamentations. That wasn't in the original decree. and I think this is something that Esther added as a legacy of her faith. Now, I'm not sure how you feast and fast 
how you celebrate and have lamentations, but here's what I think is behind this. I believe she's intending to direct the people in terms of what they are to do after this holiday celebration. Because every memorial is intended to create a response. Purim was a time to share meals together, to have fellowship with one another, to give gifts to the poor. So yes, feasting and celebrating God's faithfulness is a part of this holiday celebration. But there's more. Because Esther is reminding them of that pattern of God's people moving forward. She instructs them, be prayerful, be humble before the Lord. Don't take his blessings for granted. In in gratitude, show your gratitude through your faithful obedience. The memorial of Purim should create a response of faith. That's her point. Remembering God's faithfulness in the past should bring hope and conviction in his promises for the future. Now, way back in January, when I first thought about doing this series of Esther, I thought about it because of how it lined up with our celebration of Thanksgiving. Because I see some very clear similarities between the Feast of Purim for the Jews and what we celebrate in our holiday of Thanksgiving. They both have fellowship and meals that we share together. That's what we're going to do this afternoon. And that's what they do in their Feast of Purim. Many times the people that they celebrate with will take food to those in need. You do the very same thing every year. People take food to those who can't be there, who they want to help and serve and and care for. You see, Purim encourages the Jews to be thankful. And really, at its heart, that's what our Thanksgiving is all about, right? And, And both of the holidays are ultimately based in a commitment of faith. We know that because of what we've worked through in our story of Esther, But you may not realize it that Thanksgiving in America was originally intended for the same reason. These are the words of George Washington, our first president. Listen to what he says when this day was inaugurated for the American people. He said, this is a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of our almighty God. The Feast of Purim and our thanksgiving was originally intended to turn our hearts toward God and His faithful provision. And I think maybe like the Jews in their day, we are no different in that we need to reclaim that for ourselves. That's what it's supposed to be about. But I want us to go a step further. Because we live in the reality that this world is broken. There's hurt. There's despair. And it's hard to understand, even in moments like today, how do you have thanksgiving in the midst of lamentation? How do you feast and yet fast because your heart is saddened? Well, I think the answer is this. Purim is ultimately a celebration of deliverance, right? God protecting his people, delivering them, promising them hope for the future. We think about Thanksgiving in many ways. We have a similar uh, heart towards Thanksgiving. It's a, it's a day of celebrating our freedoms, the deliverance that we've had as a, an American people. But if all we do is fast and celebrate, we miss the point. 
If you've been delivered from something, that means you've been delivered to something. A memorial should create a response of faith. You see, Esther is important because it reminds us that God made a promise to preserve His people in order to provide a Savior from among the Jews. And what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf is the ultimate deliverance. It is a deliverance from sin. And it is a promise of a hope that is yet to come. So how can we celebrate in this broken world, this world filled with with death and evil and destruction? You can't read the paper these days and not just be weighed down by the reality of what we're living in today. How can you celebrate in that context of that? Because you can look at the faithfulness of God's history with us in the past and celebrate the promise of the hope that we have and the promises yet future. We have to be able to find hope beyond our circumstances. The Jews looked at God's deliverance and they didn't see that as the end of the story. There was promises yet to come that they were living for. And that's what we're called to do as well. We are God's people. This is not our home. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And this is not the way it will be. And we need to align our lives with the hope of the promises yet to come. When all things are made new. When there is no more death. There is no more sorrow. There is no more pain. That's the promise. That's the hope. And that's why we can celebrate in the midst of a broken world. Because that's what we live for. Amen? So maybe this Thanksgiving more than any other, we can take that to heart and be a people that lives differently from this day on because a memorial should always create a response of faith. It should never stand alone. Let's pray. think of the psalm that says, who and I of heaven but you. I think of the disciples' response and Jesus asked, are you going to leave me as well? And they said, where else would we go? Or to the disciple when, they, when he was asked, do you have faith? And he says, I do, but help me in my unbelief. Father, you're so gracious to us so kind and merciful. You understand our weaknesses. You understand our frailty. You knew we would sin before that sin even took place. And before the world began, you planned a redemption for us because of your great love for us. And your faithfulness extends from beginning to end. So during this time of Thanksgiving, we pray that we might acknowledge and understand that more than we ever have that we might reclaim the very roots of what we are called to as Christians that is so easily lost in the world in which we live today. That we would have hope not in everything working out perfectly here, because this is a broken world, but hope in the promise that one day all things are made new. And we believe in you, we believe in that promise, and we live for it. And so until that day comes, may we live each day to the fullest, proclaiming the goodness of the God we serve, the promises that he's made, the redemption that he's provided, and the hope that we have 
through faith in Christ alone. We don't have that hope. We don't have anything. But because we have that hope, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Now and for all eternity. So it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who gives us that hope that we all pray as God's people. We say, Amen.